Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates and paint and troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get You uh, may have heard recently about the cyber attack that took down the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, that was a ransomware attack that was apparently done by a group called Darkside, who later apologized, I guess, and for basically upending the supply of the eastern U.S.'s uh, fuel uh, supply line saying that it just wanted to make money and not to create problems for society. Of course, uh, those two things, uh, making money and creating problems for society are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I guess they get points for their honesty. Uh, to be honest, the fact that we haven't seen more of these kinds of attacks creating societal level problems is perhaps something of a miracle. Uh, significant parts of our critical infrastructure tragically ill-prepared for attacks like these, I think. Uh, to some extent, we're perhaps lucky that most groups engaging in these attacks really are in it for the money rather than to create problems for society, because if it were the reverse, uh, they could probably do uh, a lot more damage. That's not to say there isn't uh, a lot of damage being done already. Uh, the prevalence of ransomware attacks hitting places like hospitals and other medical providers has been talked about at length as well, and certainly can be pretty pretty scary. Uh, one part of the U.S. government that's been working on ways to help prevent and deal with such attacks is NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, which is a part of the Commerce Department. Uh, for many years now, it has put out its cybersecurity framework to help organizations think through these different cybersecurity challenges. And uh, it is now also working with the Center for Cybersecurity Policy and Law to promote the concept of cybersecurity risk management, including through a series of new events to encourage things like having interoperability among cybersecurity standards and frameworks. So today on the podcast, to talk about all of this, we have three guests. We have Alex Bodding and Ross Noderft, uh, both of whom work on cybersecurity services at Venable and support the Center for Cybersecurity Policy and Law. And we have Amy Mon from NIST, uh, where she is an international policy specialist in, in the Applied Cybersecurity Division. So uh, welcome to the podcast, all three of you. So uh, let's start with uh, the Colonial Pipeline attack, uh, since that's made some recent headlines. So Ross, uh, do you want to start and talk about kind of what we know happened there at least? Sure. So what we know right now um, is, I mean, what you what you read and what's been reported widely in the news, right? So we 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 understand that a group, a a hacking group called Darkside, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more. You touched on it briefly, but I'll talk about it a little more in a second. Uh, they uh, basically they sell ransomware as a service, and the the Darkside ransomware was used to. Uh, was was dropped into the colonial pipeline network and i'm not we're not clear or i'm not clear at least um if it was uh via a, a web interface or or via email but but somebody clicked on and downloaded the the malware in the organization and uh that led to 
both the uh, encryption of and exfiltration of uh, specific data and to which then led to a um, an issue with some of their business processes. We're hearing uh, some of the billing business processes, which caused in turn the pipeline to shut down services along uh, the East Coast. That uh, lasted for, for a while and internally they were deliberating and finally came out in the news that the CEO paid $4.4 million to uh, release the data and, and download the, uh, uh, unencrypt the, unencrypt their data and, and get back to get back to business. So they restarted the pipeline. Um, this is what's interesting about dark side. And I think you said this earlier is that they didn't mean to cause any harm where we saw, you know, gas, we saw people filling up, uh, uh plastic bags full of gasoline <laughs> for, for a brief period of time. Um, if you read about the group and I think cyber reason is put out a pretty good, uh, report on some of it, but if you read about the group, they consider themselves very much, um, <laughs> do gooders through ransomware. I think they have a very <laughs> strong code of, of ethics. Uh, basically, from from my reading, I understand that they only target English speaking companies, right? So oh. if you happen to operate uh, in a in a non English speaking environment, like Russia, for instance, you're you're pretty much off limits to the use of the ransomware. So it's it's um, it's an interesting group. They've since shut down uh, some of the the website offering the the ransomware. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're learning a lot of lessons every day from this, right? I think there's, there's a lot of work going on right now at the Department of Homeland Security in, in CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, to, to really assess um, what the best path forward is for ransomware. I know Ann Newberg has been out in the news talking a lot about what you should and shouldn't do as it relates to ransomware. And there, there's work going on in the, in the administration on how best uh, to get companies to uh, approach ransomware collectively, but it's a, it's a tough, it's, it's a business decision at the end of the day. And, and a lot of it has to do, um, with, you know, the, the circumstances, of the events and, uh, having worked with companies, both big and small who deal with this on a regular basis, I can, I can tell you that, um, if you have, if, if you are in a spot where, millions of of dollars are going out the door every day that you're shut down or you have some type of catastrophic loss of life that is in, uh, could be could happen as a result of a ransomware attack you're gonna you're gonna seriously consider it um, and then other businesses um, who have certain protections in place and we can talk more about kind of how you how you mitigate that risk uh, a little bit later, those those folks may be in a better place to consider whether or not to to, to pay. So I think it's uh, I think it's case by case, and uh, I tell you, it's been it's been interesting to see it play out uh, as as widely as it has in the media. And can I piggyback with a couple of thoughts there, Mike? Yeah, go for it. Um, so I want to push back a little bit on this notion that the presence of some of these high profile incidents whether it's colonial pipeline whether it's the recent ransomware attack on the irish health service um is necessarily a a failure or particularly a policy failure um so i I wanted to throw out there a couple of framing thoughts that make cybersecurity policy a little bit different from other areas um first and foremost you you referred to critical infrastructure at the top um 
there is a category of companies um, which we commonly refer to as critical infrastructure, um, think banking, think energy, communications, the kind of things that um, the rest of the economy needs to um, to function on a day-to-day basis. And most, certainly a lot of the key functions that they facilitate um, require the use of digital systems. So it is fairly clear, at least to me, um, that government has a role to play here in at least ensuring that um, mitigation measures are being put in place, that companies are, are thinking this through, um, and, and you know, investing in protecting those systems given the important role they play in society. The challenge is cybersecurity is not static. Um, if you think of a challenge like tax avoidance, um, we can document what your salary is. We can document, uh, you know, what statutory rate you should uh, should pay. We can figure out what carve outs are, are relevant to you, which tax exemptions. And at the end, we know the amount that you should pay in taxes. And the question is, how much are we going to invest in the IRS to, to go out and do audits and make sure people are paying their fair share? Um, the the key factors are not static in cybersecurity because you're working against an active set of adversaries who shift tactics, invest in new capabilities in response to the things that you do on the defensive side. So even if you got together the greatest minds in cybersecurity today, they would really struggle to write a solution to this problem and make it into a compliance issue. Um, Both sides are constantly trying to stay ahead of one another um, and to some extent, that means that some incidents are inevitable. Um, And it's not until we start to look under the hood that we can see whether, in fact, this was a failure of um, the company. Or sometimes if it's a, you know, highly sophisticated state actor, um, things just happen sometimes. If you've got enough resources coming against you, um, it it can be near on impossible to stop it. And I I think there's kind of a public reaction that if something happens, it's because the company or the government entity doesn't care about cybersecurity or refuses to invest in it. It, It's a little bit more complex than that. Um, Layer on top of that, it becomes very difficult from a policy perspective um, for a one-size-fits-all approach to be created because every company's digital footprint is different. The, uh, the mitigation measures that they put in place are different. Frankly, even just their business, um, the business model will hugely impact that. So trying to create a one-size-fits-all prescription, I'd sort of liken it to fitting out the wedding party by taking the median <laughs> measurements of, of, the groom, of the groomsmen. Um, you know, you, you could get a little way there, but it's, it's really not going to... Uh, not going to look good in the long run. Um, uh, fourth point I'd make is that even though uh, it, it is probably impossible to write something that will stand the test of time, we can certainly have regulators work with companies, look under the hood, and identify potential vulnerabilities on the ex ante side. And that is really where the role of government should come into play. Um, and then the final point I'll make is um, international. So cybersecurity threats are consistent wherever you are in the world. If you look at a topic like privacy, um, the 
philosophical underpinnings are really, uh, you know, of a particular society will impact the outcomes that they want from the policy. I don't think that's necessarily true in cybersecurity. I think, in fact, it's pretty consistent what governments want, whether you're in Paris or Portland, um, you want to ensure that systems are not disrupted. Um, the very threats that that could potentially upend that are consistent globally. And so there's no real need for divergence from country to country here. And in fact, the divergence inhibits effective cybersecurity because companies um, then have to deal with setting up their systems to be tailored to different regulatory regimes rather than just investing in the things that are going to be most effective in mitigating their own vulnerabilities you also start then having to bring lawyers into play, which is, is never a good thing, as I say, as someone who works in a law firm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so th that actually gets to, to the, the question on the on the government side. Um, and so, Amy, I'm going to bring you in here and, and ask you to talk a little bit about about the cybersecurity framework and, and kind of what it actually is. Um, and, and I bring that up for a couple of reasons. One, I think, you know, the, the framing that, that Ross and Alex um, set up certainly raises the question of what is the government's role here and, and, and where does it fit in? But also, you know, uh, what Alex was just saying about how you can't really have a one size fits all um, setup to, to work in, in such a, a sort of highly diverse space. Um, and I know that like when I've spoken to people about the, the NIST cybersecurity framework um, and I talk to, you know, mainly like Silicon Valley companies, there, there is always this fear that, that any sort of government framework is kind of a one size fits all approach. So um, with that, can you sort of talk a little bit about what the cybersecurity framework is and what it's trying to do? Thanks, Mike. And it's Ross and Alex for a, setting this up as well. So at NIST, we are a non-regulatory agency in the Department of Commerce, which I think does give us some perspective to be able to have conversations with industry, hear their perspectives, and learn from their side of things and bake that into the standards and guidance that we develop. And in the case of the cybersecurity framework, and agree on this point, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but it's definitely meant to be a tool to help organizations and critical infrastructure sectors better manage and reduce their cybersecurity risk. And one of the main points of NIST's approach as we develop these standards and guidance is to really focus on collaboration and getting input from stakeholders. And in the case of the cybersecurity framework, it really was a NIST more having a role of convening and bringing in those stakeholders, not just from other government agencies, but also industry and private sector. We worked with academia and, to Alex's point, international partners since the uh, issues we're seeking to address really are faced all over the world. So getting all those different perspectives is really what helped make the cybersecurity framework, not just a U.S. government developed framework and something that's not U.S. centric, but something that can be used all over the world. The first version of the cybersecurity framework was developed after a presidential executive order asked us back in 2013 to take that collaborative approach. And the first version that came out was voluntary guidance for managing cybersecurity risks across critical infrastructure. And since then, we've updated it and we'll continue to update and keep it as a living document since things continue to change. And we always are continuously reaching back out to those stakeholders prior to the pandemic, being able to have those in-person workshops, having that open and transparent process of putting out documents for review and collecting public comments. So all that's very important for our approaches. As of now, our federal government does have to use the cybersecurity framework, but it does remain voluntary for industry. 
we think the importance of that collaboration and working closely with industry to develop it has helped spur some of its uptake. And we definitely learned from seeing all those use cases and the way that it is implemented across industry, and that helps us as we update it. But just to give a little more context on what it looks like, so cybersecurity framework, again, not a one-size-fits-all, but really a sort of cat catalog of different cybersecurity outcomes. And we organize it under five different functions that really span from both a preventive side all the way through to an incident occurring and how one can react after that. And as we worked collaboratively with others, we really got a lot of sense from stakeholders that the best five functions to sort of form that language of approaching risk could be categorized as identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And to use sort of a basic comparison, maybe looking at a, how it could be applied in a case such as a securing a house. With Identify, that's really asking organizations to take a look and inventory the different assets they have and what's at risk, as well as looking to see what is most vulnerable and sort of make those business decisions, as Ross said, about what's most important to protect. In the case of a house, that would be possibly looking at where the different windows and doors, which ones might be a little bit more at risk, like on the first floor, even though understanding a robber can have a ladder, but maybe you want to direct more of your resources and your time to protecting the things that are most at risk. And in terms of the second function of protect, that uh, asks you to look at those things that you've identified and try to identify different appropriate safeguards to put in place to protect those. Whether in the case of the house, that would be locks, different security systems. So uh, <laughs> really taking a look at that and in the framework itself, those are broken down into various categories and subcategories, but all really coalescing around that idea of how do you uh, safeguard and protect what's most at risk and what's important to you. And this isn't asking people to follow that prescriptive list and see, yes, here's all these different things I have to be doing, but really looking at what is important to your organization and what requirements you have, what are the unique risks that you're facing, and taking that into account. So really more risk-based and outcomes-based. For the third one with detect, really asking people to take a look at what does normal even look like in terms of everyday functioning and understanding that. So if there is an incident or something occurs, you're better able to detect it and know that something is off. In that case of the house, that might be installing a security camera and monitoring it so you can see if there's any irregular activity and then really just understanding what that looks like when an incident occurs. In terms of responding, that's of course uh, with the house, you would be calling the police, notifying neighbors and seeing if anyone else was uh, impacted. And under that function, we have various categories showing what's most important to keep in mind in terms of communicating with the stakeholders you have to reach out to and making sure everyone's really aware of that plan and everyone's trained to know what to do if the worst should happen. And for the last function of recover, again, with the house, that would be a, taking some lessons learned and even as you're working towards those steps to rebuild or repair what might have been damaged or lost. Also, really incorporating those lessons learned and making changes to try to make sure you're not exposed to those same types of vulnerabilities again. Maybe changing your locks or identifying some new needs and gaps, whether that's <laughs> getting a dog that might help you in terms of protection or detection to be able to bark in. <laughs> but uh, really making those changes and identifying those gaps. So the cybersecurity framework gives you that language to look at these issues. It helps people communicate internally and externally about these steps that they're taking. And really having that more common language is something that also makes it easier to be used or adopted outside of the US since these are all common terms that most people can understand. And even with varying levels of exp expertise in cybersecurity, you can understand those at a basic level. So we have found a lot of value in that and <laughs> hopefully that helps explain a bit more. Yeah, no, I think that that is really useful. Uh, one question I have is just in, in listening to all that. And, and I think 
um, that I, I've seen some people struggle with in, in thinking about this is, is who exactly is this for? Um, because, you know, when, you know, one of the issues when, when thinking about cybersecurity is, you know, there are a lot of different organizations that have cybersecurity questions and, and they can be from, you know, small businesses to, you know, to, to, to startups, to tech companies, to non-tech companies, to, to, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations, all different kinds of, of organizations. And, and those can be all different kinds of sizes, you know, from very, very small to very, very large. Um, and, you know, I think a, a lot of people recognize, you know, most, most larger companies, especially more technically savvy ones are thinking about this, but, um, wh wh who do you think that this is, this is for really, and is it is it for everyone across the board, or is there sort of a target for it? Oh, thanks for that question. It is intended to be flexible enough and able to be adapted to be used by everybody. And when it was originally designed, the focus was on critical infrastructure and making sure these different cybersecurity outcomes were flexible enough to apply across whether healthcare, transportation, energy, and be scaled to meet the needs of those specific sectors. But it really has been used by organizations of all different sizes. Because again, it's not asking you, in the current version of the framework, there's 108 subcategories. There's no need to do all of those, but really <laughs> make that a risk-based analysis and determine what are the ones that are most important to you. And that's what you can derive value from. So there's really not one way to use the framework. So so organizations of different sizes can use it. And keeping that in mind and knowing that sometimes it can be challenging from a resource or personnel perspective, we try to develop different resources, particularly for small, medium businesses and others for a some guidance in looking at and considering how to use the framework. Hey, Mike, can I jump in for a second? And yeah, give you an it. example, uh, which I think is, is kind of illustrative of the point you're trying to make. Um, with the, uh, so I was working briefly with a uh, with a with a major technology company, and, and one of the interesting things is you're you're 100 right. The, this this type of company is thinking about this every day. They're building and designing systems uh, that, that help people automate these services. They're delivering both hardware and software to folks, right? So I'm, I'm working with this company. And one of the things that they brought me in to do was to do use this particular framework on to, to help assess vendors for that, that are supplying. And not just first mm -hmm. top tier providers. I'm talking second and third tier providers into their organizations from a supply chain perspective. And they said, look, we want this to be an apples to apples comparison across our vendor space to go use the NIST cybersecurity framework as a, as a tool and do these assessments. So I spent probably about six months talking to quite a few companies and walking them through. It was between three and five hours for each assessment. And I, I'll tell you, I did everything from, you know, high-end fabrication facilities that are receiving direct requirements and specifications for building out hardware technology, all the way to people who were uh, located in, you know, in communities that were focused on basic manufacturing, like building nuts and bolts. Um, some of them were supplying uh, waste management services to people. And we were using the NIST cybersecurity framework to help them walk through some of the risks to their environment, because it just doesn't apply it, you can run through it and find pieces and parts that apply to all of the service tiers just to make sure they're thinking about the potential risks of exposing whatever that sensitive data is and then how to protect it on the back end. I, I mean, I think the, the good part about this framework 
is it is extensible and flexible and can actually, in reality, apply to everybody. As long as you have somebody who understands it and understands how to use it in a way um, that that even these small and medium-sized businesses can, can find useful. Yeah, and, and, and that makes sense. Um, I did want to ask, I mean, you, you've, you've t mentioned um, you know, risk management and sort of thinking through risk a lot. And I know that's, that's kind of an important element in, in the way that you've been talking about this. Um, and I know that, um, you know, certainly when, when I've talked to people about these issues or talk about risk management, you know, what, what it, what it tends to fall back on for many people is kind of like, what does our insurance company say? Because <laughs> the, the insurance company is determining, you know, that, that is basically the way a lot of companies think about risk management is, is what does the insurance company say is okay and what they will cover. Um, is, is that the right way to think about it? Or is there a broader way of, of thinking about all this? I, so I always think of insurance as a tool, uh, in the cybersecurity armory, right? Um, you can choose to, um, when, when you see a particular risk, you can choose to mitigate it. Um, you can choose to sort of outsource it, which is mm -hmm. the function of insurance, um, or you can choose to absorb it. Um, and there will be certain risks where you look at something and you say, with finite budget, finite resources, if this is a really minor thing that cannot have any significant repercussions to our business, um, then maybe you choose to absorb it. When you look specifically at the outsourcing piece, insurance is a tool at your disposal, right, um, to, to de-risk a situation. I don't think, um, certainly amongst sophisticated companies, there is a push towards um, believing that that can solve every problem. Um, for starters, um, any cyber insurance policy is going to be quite narrow in terms of what it covers. Um, part of the reason for that is there isn't actuarial data going back 100 years that makes insurance companies comfortable um, about the amount of risk they would be taking on. So any insurance policy you take out is is going to be limited. Um, and because companies know that and, and have armies of good lawyers who, who make sure that they're aware of that, um, I think can't think of an example where uh, I've spoken with a company that that is their solution to the problem, which is a good thing to your point. Um, <laughs> we cannot simply, uh, you know, outsource, um, shift off a particular type of risk and concentrate it in, you know, a, an insurance company, no matter how good the actuarial data. Um, uh, fundamentally, there are certain areas where you may choose to do that. Um, but for the most part, you're going to be looking at how can we mitigate the the more significant risks at least um sorry did you want to jump in there uh no no go ahead i, I didn't mean to interrupt no no quite all right um so so yeah and that's generally the framework that folks are going to look at it within um what can we uh what can we mitigate what can we outsource what can we um what do we choose to absorb because the risk is a little lower um Cool. So I, I know that, that you guys have started up um, a series of events, you know, kind of exploring this. Um, and the uh, the first one is, is happening right before this podcast comes out. <laughs> uh, but can you talk about the events, what you're trying to accomplish with them um, and and you know, when, when the next ones are? Sure. No, absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit and then, Amy, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. Um, so. 
like you said, the first one will be will be happening uh, after this or, or before this podcast comes out. And that one's focused on, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, hopefully in a little bit, but international cybersecurity risk management. And Alex touched on some of those issues, right? The, the fact that multinational companies are operating in a trans uh, or, or across borders and the risks to those companies also uh, expand and extend beyond those borders. And, and how do we, how do we get a handle on that? How do we, how do we as governments work collectively together to, to promote um, standards that can be used as people go from one environment, one, one nation to another and the operations um, span the globe. Uh, second one is going to focus on something that's, that's pretty, pretty relevant given some of the uh, incidents that we've, we've heard over the past six months and that's cybersecurity supply chain risk management. That'll be the second one. It'll probably be uh, about six weeks from now. We don't have a date set, set yet, but um, we will be sending out updates on that soon. Um, and then we expect probably a six-week cadence between each one. Um, the third will focus on nonprofit cybersecurity risk management. And what I mean by nonprofit is K-12 through education. This has been another area where, where people have looked at um, and seen an uptick in ransomware incidents. Um, Healthcare, same thing. Uh, and then finally, uh, how do we pay for it all? And this is going to get to your point, Mike, which is focusing on small and medium-sized businesses. And what are the what are the tools we're seeing out there for both public sector entities and small and medium-sized businesses to really figure out how to how to put their dollars, their scant amount of dollars that are into security, right? And that's that's a that's a tough decision, right? I can either put it right back into my business, or I can buy down some of this risk, whether that's through insurance or whether that's through, you know, uh, buying some MSSP services. Um, so that, that's going to be uh, the last in the, in the series. And what the goal of this is to promote the discussion about what it means to effectively um, manage the risk at a specific agency. Like Alex said at the beginning, this is not at all a one size fits all approach. So we have to take a look at what are the what are the threats, what are the best practices that each of these specific entities uh, or, or types of entities or um, sectors are using to, to buy down some of this risk, especially when the the people who are who are uh, perpetuating and perpetrating some of these acts are are you know they're not concerned that you're an organization that's doing good for the world. I mean, maybe dark sides and I think dark sides an anomaly on that one. There's a lot of people targeting some, some really um, great organizations that haven't traditionally thought about protecting their data, protecting their assets and how kind of the evolution into the digital economy has, has opened up some, some areas of risk that they hadn't previously considered. Amy, what, what do you think? Uh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. And, and just to build off of what Ross said, very excited for the first event, I know, being my uh, focus with international. That discussion will also bring in some perspectives of others around the world who are using and benefiting from the approach of the cybersecurity framework, including a company in Japan and someone from the Irish government. So that's been really helpful for us to hear and see how others are using it and really demonstrating how this approach can be used, not just here, but around the world. And also... Again, being from NIST and loving to talk about standards, it's also going to be a really excellent opportunity to 
look at how the cybersecurity framework can also be more internationally aligned because it leverages international standards. It can be the basis for someone to start a cybersecurity risk management program if they don't already have one, but it also recognizes that there already are things out there, standards and guidelines and best practices, things like the International Standards Organization, ISO 27001, COVID controls, ISA 62443, so things that people might already be using and comfortable with, and the framework was designed to be uh, complementary to those and even references those standards and shows how some of those outcomes that it lists can be achieved by using those international standards. And we have also Wait. taken the, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Amy, sorry. <laughs> also uh, took the approach of the framework to one of those standards development organizations, ISO and the Interelectric Technical Commission, IEC, and that is now a culminated in both a technical report and technical specification, so in the standards family, but something that does not say a U.S. government or NIST, but really is just the culmination of working with partners across the world in that open and transparent process to develop standards, but has that risk-based approach, a flexible way of considering those different types of uh, concepts like identify, protect, et cetera. So having that available as a resource has also been very helpful for us in terms of our international outreach. So this is another area that we wanted to highlight and focus on as well. Mike, real quick, I, I got to yeah. say that NIST far and away is, is one of my personal favorite government agencies out there. I mean, it's a, it is it is the model for I interacting with uh, with its citizenry, right? So they, they are working with the community constantly to find what what the areas are that need to be developed. And then they're promoting those and they're putting them down in a standard format. And then they're giving them back to the community that's asking for them. I mean, it's just the cycle is is, is wonderful when it's working. And I think that the, the CSF, the NIST Cybersecurity Framework is an example of, of how that's successful. I mean, it's a living document. And I think mm -hmm. that as we have more of these engagements overall, it gives NIST some food to, to, for food for thought and, and things to chew on as they're looking at, at ways to, to refine uh, some of these frameworks and standards that they, they develop. Um, I mean, the, the one question that, that always comes up in these discussions is, is around like getting people to, you know, to understand and, and recognize all this. And I know that's, that's some of what, what it is that you're trying to do. Um, but also it, it often feels like the organizations that need this the most are often feel like the ones least, least likely to, to, uh, be searching for this or, or be pay, paying attention to this. So, you know, what, what efforts are there to sort of get this more widely recognized and understood? So I think there's a couple of factors I'd flag there. One, um, NIST uh, actually does do a, a good job at doing some, um, uh, you know, forums and events outside of Washington D.C. to socialize the framework, help build understanding, and generally give smaller, uh, smaller medium-sized enterprises a point of contact. Um, I think another one is a point that Ross touched on briefly earlier, which is um, supply chain risk. Mm -hmm. If we coalesce around a particular approach, as we've done in the U.S., um, but do so more and more internationally, um, the framework becomes a common language that companies can talk to one another about. Mm -hmm. um, and it is common already for larger companies with um, you know, significant supply chains to 
make requirements of uh, uh, companies in their supply chain in terms of cybersecurity. There's a good reason for this. If we look at Microsoft Exchange or, or SolarWinds recently, um, supply chains can be a vector of attack themselves. And depending on the nature of your partnerships, um, you may be bringing risk into your system if, uh, if indeed they are not up to, to standard on cybersecurity. So I do think that um, the sort of supply chain uh, risk factor has a, a flip side to it, which is as more and more companies make requirements down their supply chain in terms of cybersecurity, um, that should actually lead to a leveling up um, because not only are you making those requirements, um, but the larger, more sophisticated players who may have better monitoring of particular threats um, can pass that information down through their supply chain and require that um, uh, that smaller companies are putting in place measures to mitigate. Um, so my hope is that it can also be a positive. Yeah, I mean, w- with the solar winds example, I mean, I think that's an interesting one too. In that, um, right, and which was sort of a supply chain attack, which created all sorts of <laughs> potential uh, damage, certainly. Um, but you know, that was also a case where I think a lot of people just kind of felt that, you know, solar winds that, that, you know, that was that, you know, that they knew what they were doing and that that was sort of a trustworthy supply chain partner, which, you know, proved incorrect. And so there is an element here of, and and I know that we said earlier, obviously, there's no way to to completely prevent and and often a, a motivated attacker will figure out some way to get through no matter what. But also doesn't, you know, to some extent, the solar wind situation raises the question of, you know, how much does this matter if, you know, if everyone thinks that like, you know, solar winds is, is you know, was, everything should have been done right and, and clearly was not, um, then, you know, how, how do you deal with, with that kind of situation where even if you, you think your suppliers are, are, you know, following everything and doing everything right, if, if something goes wrong and it just impacts everyone else in the, in the supply chain, um, you know, how do you deal with those kinds of situations? Yeah. So I, I, that that's the question in everybody's mind, right? Like what, ha- what happens when the people get in right? and regardless of how many protections you layer on the top. And I think that, again, just cause <laughs> we're here, I'm, I'm going to go back to the, the idea of the framework. It's the respond and recover pieces, it's the right, last two right. pieces, right? It's the cyclical, but you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, look, you, you, we right now look at um, some of these companies and, and what motivates some of the, the, the private sector and even public sector entities to in, increase their cybersecurity. I, I think that it's, I think it's in, in, important that some of the people who do oversight, whether it's, it's regulators like the FTC looking at the safeguards rule or whether it's um, in, the public, in the public sector, it's your, your con- members of Congress and OMB, are looking at organizations and really using the framework to, to apply um, their judgment on how well an organization is set up to do exactly what you're talking about. Like who's equipped right now to do the first three very well, you know, identify, protect, detect, and then who is also investing in and has done good work to be able to respond effectively when, when it hits the fan, right? Like when things, go sideways. Right. 
And, and, and I think that I, we are seeing more of that in discussion right now, but I mean, I, I don't want to lose the thread on that, right? I mean, the amount of organizations I work with who I can tell you, there's about 20% of the folks that I work with that when we get the call that there's an incident, they're telling me what we need to do. The other 80% are like, uh, we didn't expect this to happen. Let me know. Let me know what we should do now. <laughs> right. So for, for what it's worth, I think we need to take yeah. a holistic view of, of, of these types of, of incidents. No, and, and, and I think that's, that's it's, it's important. And, and kind of your response reinforced a, a point that, that everybody, including me, you know, and asking that question kind of glosses over, which is that, you know, this recognition that, that, you know, you can't protect everything and, and the sort of response and, and reaction aspects of it are, are, you know, equally, if not more important in some cases. And, and so preparing for that is important. Um, just, just to close out the discussion, because I know every time we talk about cybersecurity incidents and, and, and attacks and particularly on, on critical infrastructure, um, we always have somebody in our audience who pipes up with the, the, uh, quote unquote, simple solution, which is uh, critical infrastructure should never be connected to the internet in any way at all. And, uh, you know, that's the problem. And anyone who connects critical infrastructure in any way to the internet deserves whatever it is that they get. And so just to close out the discussion, do you have a response to, to that kind of thing? Because I, it, it, it'd be helpful to, to respond to that person because they're always there. <laughs> I'm happy to go, Alex, or you can go first, <laughs> whichever you'd like. I mean, I don't even know in this day and age what that would look like. Um, yeah. <laughs> having having entire systems disconnected um, from the internet in any way, I mean, there are huge costs to that as well, right? Um, yeah. And so the question you've got to ask yourself is, um, you know, how large are the benefits? Um, clearly quite significant given the capabilities that, that we have. Um, Secondly, or rather on the flip side of that, um, you know, what are the potential risks that you're absorbing in and is the cost of that larger? And my guess is it's going to be vastly weighted towards the benefits rather than the um, handful of incidents that, that hit the news. Um, you know, at the end of the day, those are all business decisions. Um, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, it would be very, very tricky to manage the banking sector, to manage communication sector disconnected <laughs> from the Internet. Is that even possible? Um, uh, but certainly, uh, you know, I take your point. Folks need to be asking themselves all kinds of questions about the risks that they're taking to their to their business. And maybe there are certain instances um certain systems where it is possible to be disconnected from the internet because they are just that important and because being connected to the internet is is you know perhaps not not bringing that much of a benefit um in those cases maybe they do decide to do that but um you know let's not forget that espionage existed before the internet did so uh, <laughs> taking things off the internet is no guarantee yeah, yeah. Look, can i can i just can i just add i yeah. mean what you're getting into here is like is a is a user it's a user experience versus security discussion. And, right. and like, you, like you have to give, give up one to get the other. I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> think about it from a personal sense. I mean, your, your toll tags are connected as you're driving along, um, in, in my case, as I'm driving along 66, listening to Tracy Chapman, going down <laughs> to see my, my uncle down the road. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to give up the, the convenience of that because I'm concerned that there may be a, a cyber attack. And, or if I'm sitting in the Verrazano Bridge, I don't want everybody 
paying money by hand to go over the bridge into New York City. I mean, it's just from a business standpoint, you're going to get overruled every day of the week. So the question is, how do you bake it in from the beginning? And how do you build in those security layers? And I think right now is the time to be having this discussion, given what uh, Secretary Buttigieg said about building in cybersecurity into the infrastructure as we're investing in it from the ground up. And hopefully that will raise the bar and make some of those concerns about unplugging everything uh, moot. Yeah, no, that, I think that makes sense. That was a, a good answer. I, I, <laughs> I recognize that and I, I agree with you. I just know that it always comes up and it's, it's frustrating for me to, to, to see that question come up. So uh, I, I like to have professionals answer it for me. <laughs> so look, if they, if they do have the answer to all of this, Mike, please reach out to us. Let us know. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right. Uh, so uh, Amy, Ross and Alex, uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Um, for people who want to uh, follow the, the event series that you're doing, where is it that they should be looking? Um, they should look on uh, a website, and if I can send the link to you, uh, we have a we have an event right and a schedule website um, that I can uh, send so that you can include in the link uh, if possible. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll add it to the description uh, of the podcast. So anyone who wants to pay attention, uh, go and check that out. Go look at the description, and and uh, we'll have all the details there. So, uh, thanks again for taking the time and having this discussion and putting together the event series and the framework and all of that. So, uh, thanks, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. Thank you, Mike. We thanks appreciate for having it. us on, Mike. Thank you and for having th- us. Great, and thanks to everyone for listening as well. We'll be back next week. Uh, 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 uh,